Welcome back to another Bite Side. I'm Seamus Byrne. Each week we hang out, we talk about tech, games, digital culture, things, all the internet stuff that is exciting our brains. And when I say our, I don't mean just me sitting here by myself talking at you, dear listener. I talk about Nick Healy, who's here as well. Nick, how are you? I'm in here, virtually here. I'm in almost here. We are, we are in fact, in wildly That's different true. cities. Which is one of those bits of yeah. technology that blows my mind. I love it every single time. Yeah, and I, you know, for some other shows, so, you know, we record this thanks to, you know, some wonderfully high-tech uh, radio-type technology. Um, but I have started using Discord, actually, for recording some of my other shows and have found it really quite good. Um, and it's kind of that weird thing where you go, this, you know, product that was designed to support gamers just wanting to talk to each other while they played games alongside it um, has turned out to now feel in a lot of ways more reliable than Skype and stuff like that. So purely from my experience, but yeah, it's kind of cool how smooth, silky smooth this sort of tech gets and that it, it, so much of it comes down to the quality of somebody's microphone or headset rather than just is the internet going to handle the audio. <laughs> Look, Discord makes me feel old because I had a friend who was like, oh, we should chat on Discord. And I'm like, why? We have seven other ways to chat to each other. Like why <laughs> on earth are you forcing me to download a whole new app, a whole new ecosystem that I'm meant to somehow? And, of course, I was just having a bit of whinge, but um, I've never understood exactly <laughs> where it sits in that whole it is yet another way to chat to people. You've actually explained it a bit better for me now, and I will be checking it out. Well, like the really big thing that it's now, I think, done an amazing job of is it's essentially a Slack competitor now, you know, that you can for free set up what gets called a server. And it really basically is your own kind of Discord server where you set up whatever kind of channels you want in the same way as Slack. You have all those kind of conversation elements within your channels. People can leave, you know, emoji responses to everything you write, just like in Slack. And then it also has voice channels that you can set up. Um, so in some way, you know, in the way that Slack is more like setting up a voice call to people that are in your Slack, Discord has this system where basically you have channels that are specifically, um, you know, channels for um, just for, you know, you click it and you now join that channel and you're now in audio contact with anybody else who has clicked that particular little channel. And so it means it's far more kind of seamless, almost like an an open communication kind of environment for just being able to talk to people without it even feeling like you're sort of ringing somebody in the way that, that Slack has done it. And I've realized as I keep explaining this, that this kind of leads into our first topic quite well, which is about starting to embrace more of these, I think, more efficient and more advanced ways of just being able to communicate with each other without needing to fly to other cities and meet up in person and all rather being heavily instigated by the fears around the coronavirus. COVID-19, coronavirus, SARS-CoV-2, I I get it myself a bit confused. COVID-19, coronavirus, I'm fine with it either way. You... (laughs) 
has it been on your mind the way it's kind of been on mine? My employers actually proactively suggested that people start researching what they might need to do in terms of working from home, what infrastructure is required, should it come to that? Uh, you know, yesterday, uh, or yesterday our time, this week, perhaps is a better way of putting it, Nick Healy, uh, this week we heard from New South Wales Health Minister Brad Hazard. He suggested people stop shaking hands and actually pat each other on the back instead. This is starting to get incredibly serious. I was chatting to Jane Caro today about where she sees it going. Um, You know, we've seen huge amounts of economic impact. And I'm kind of curious, has it been on your mind in terms of how you are going to work? Yeah, I mean, I'm lucky in that I am very much largely a remote worker. So, you know, I live in the beautiful Southern Highlands and I get to work from a home office most of the time. Uh, but it, I mean, it does start to then play on my mind when it comes to, uh, you know, trips to international events. So I do have something scheduled at the end of March and that's to San Francisco. And part of me is thinking, like, I'm personally not worried about traveling. I think. You know, I think I'm pretty good at doing all the basics, um, but, uh, you know, and, and trying harder to make sure I do them well. But part of it is more that expectation of what are the odds that in a couple of weeks' time that event is cancelled? How do I need to kind of map my work routine and sort of planning around the idea that this thing may or may not go ahead? So there's definitely, that's a big part of my sort of thinking around it. Um you know, I've done a bit of reading around sort of some, you know, good quality virology blogs and things like that as well. And I think, you know, I've done some of the just the very basic middle class prepper type things, just making sure that there is enough, you know, not the race down the shops and buy everything, but just going, <laughs> we've got enough pasta and rice sitting around that if we needed to just kind of close up shop and hang out around the house for a couple of weeks that will be okay right yep okay you know so just all those kinds of basic things um but you know yeah really lucky to be in that work position where i don't need to travel as much but i did also you know i I wrote a piece last week about just trying to get on top of this whole idea of good remote presence for working because it's something that we have seen for so long and it's always, I think, continue to be treated as more of a novelty rather than a thing that companies are sort of taking seriously in that way of saying it shouldn't just be the emergency situations option when it could actually be used on a more regular basis to, you know, to do so many things that can improve work life on a day-to-day level for staff. Um, but yeah, it, you know, if something like this helps to trigger people to actually investigate this stuff properly, then that's probably in the long run a good thing anyway, right? Well, I hope it's a good thing because the misinformation is what I've been really concerned about with this uh, just in general. I don't know. I, I my have a job that is incredibly hard for me to do um, uh, from distance. I have um, I've been reading the DFAT yeah. website because I have some travel booked coming down uh, down towards the end of May, start of June. Uh, basically, I think I'm flying on the 28th of May. DFAT's advice is if you're flying before June, consider not. And I'm like, but is the 28th of May almost June? Like, what do I do with this information now? <laughs> but um, you know. 
you and I have talked uh, over the years about when telepresence will be a genuinely viable option. Um, You know, a lot of what was sold for the NBN was this idea that you could live anywhere and still work right around the world as you required it. But I don't, I don't get a sense that it's been there. You and I have done like teleconferences with colleagues in, in other countries and it's never felt smooth the way I always thought it would by now. Yeah, like I think you're totally right. And I think one of the biggest issues though continues to be that the way that we set it up every time we have one of these sorts of teleconference meetings is someone brings their laptop in and so then they're fiddling with the cables and then they probably don't have the right connection. And and then like there's some other, like it's every single time you do it, people are fussing over details. Um, and like cameras, oh, the camera isn't set up properly. Oh, geez. Oh, I got to install a plug-in. Oh, I mean, right. Even so many of these desktop um, video conferencing tools, you get sent a meeting link and, you know, there's no part of that meeting link that, suggests to you you probably want to click this more than five minutes before the meeting <laughs> because it's going to want to install like a, an updated plug-in driver system update blah oh. and you know and that's going to then launch like multiple different chains of bits of software and then that's going to launch you know separate software from your browser even though on all the websites for these things they always say seamless experience as you, you know, and they're like, no, these things do such a bad job sometimes. You know, actually when I interviewed Siobhan Reddy for, um, uh, for high resolution, one of the other podcasts uh, last week, I had a major drama recording the audio because the piece of software that the PRs lined up our conference call through, um, magically launched a second version of itself. One of them had like one name. The other one had almost identical name, but was different. So somehow that way that software ran was like, you've installed this bit. And then when you launch an actual call, it then launches a second bit of software. And so my audio, you know, capturing software was targeting the wrong thing because until that call actually connected, I didn't know that other piece of software even existed. So there's so much of this stuff where you go, yeah, when somebody nails all that, it's going to be great. But in office, I think in office environments, there could be, and like, and the software definitely exists, to have these things set up, you know, on the television that's in that conference room so that you can kind of have a much more seamless experience than demanding somebody has to connect their laptop Somebody has to do the thing every single time you walk into that room. And that's when it starts to become treated like this is part of our workplace, not just, oh, see if you can make it work. See, that's a really good point. When we normalize it, you know, that is incredibly important. Um, I'm fascinated by the idea of actually making it part of a workplace. Uh, I think, you know, you mentioned teleconference walls and things like that. You know, we've been ranting about telepresence robots for so long. Imagine if a telepresence robot had the same issues around consistency of quality as a Skype call does. I've had Skype calls where it sounded like the person was sitting beside me, and then other yeah. ones that sounded like they were in a submarine under a bucket while drowning. Yeah. Imagine a telepresence robot that is supposed to be the cutting edge having those same issues 
and how much more difficult that would make actually doing a meeting. Yeah. And I think some of these things, you know what, actually, it, some of this does make me think about some of those, I guess, unspoken elements of what might be the big win of 5G, because one of the big things is sort of, you know, device to device, you know, Internet of Things improvements, some of that sort of stuff. Um, one of the big things I was kind of throwing out there as an idea last week was, um, you know, if you think of being able to attend a conference, even if you're someone who just doesn't want to be doing the whole carbon footprint thing of flying to the other side of the world to go and see like six booths at a, you know, 200 booth conference. Um, wouldn't it be great if you could say, oh, I'm going to buy like a ticket that lets me rent a remote robot, like a telepresence yeah. robot for two hours. And I can then just connect remotely and drive around to see the couple of booths I wanted to see. And like, oh, I've got some time left. Great. I'm going to just kind of nose around you know, and have a look. And it's like there's a cultural aspect to that, that we just need to kind of normalize having those kinds of remote telepresence robots just hanging out rather than literally usually only ever seeing them because some booth holder rented one because it kind of looks cool and it's going to make people stop by because it's weird. Or, you know, the last time I saw one of those things in the flesh, I think, was when somebody queued up at the front of the Apple queue using one of these in order to get media attention. <laughs> but, that, you know, when, then when you sort of think, oh, what, it, what would it mean for 200 of these things to be on a show floor at a major event and knowing how bad network wireless networks are inside those kinds of events in the first place. And oh. suddenly I'm like, oh, there's there's probably a bit of infrastructure work to make that stuff work properly, including conferences starting to treat, you know, their wireless network as a really, really critical part of how the whole venue is set up to be able to handle that sort of stuff. So there's probably a few of those things, but I really feel like, Step one is some of this sort of cultural aspects. I know you mentioned the teleconference walls. I remember years ago hearing that that was something Atlassian had set up in their Sydney office. Like, I have no idea if they still do it now. But early on when there was, I think, a San Francisco office and a Sydney office, that they had a really big TV rot rotated so it was kind of, you know, tall rather than wide. And it was just always on. Like, it was like a window to the other office essentially having like this permanent Skype connection so that if you've been typing messages to somebody that you could actually say, let's just go and meet at the wall so that we can just have a conversation and stand there and talk about it face to face, but not let's line up a call. It was literally the, we'll walk over to that spot where it can feel like we're actually just standing here next to each other. And the, that kind of mental difference that that can make instead of thinking this now has to be a, a phone call that exists within this sort of 15-minute window of time that we've allotted in the calendar. Yeah. Oh, sorry, I just want to duck back to your description of 200 telepresence robots in, <laughs> yeah. in somewhere that doesn't have great connectivity and point out that that sounds like an amateur theatre production of iRobot. Like, I cannot <laughs> wait to see that actually happening. I, look, I, I remember, and God help me, I can't believe we're talking about this, I remember 2010 playing Splinter Cell Conviction. And one of the whole missions is for you to get inside the Cisco-powered and branded telepresence suite so that you can have a video conference with someone in an office building. <laughs> and it was amazing. And I don't think it's got any better since that. 
Yeah. I actually, I remember being invited to a Cisco office in North Sydney to kind of show off huh. some of their, you know, high tech. And it was probably around the same time. That was probably when they were doing a really big push. So they even sponsored it in a video game. But it really doesn't seem like it's gotten a lot better. And, you know, I mean, I all, I, can never help but think about, you know, how much Netflix actually does at a technological level where all of their video is distributed through Amazon Web Services. Um, it's just really, really brilliant engineering uh, that means that we get these kind of perfectly wonderful 4K video streams um, coming off what is not really considered to be designed for, you know, streaming video in incredibly high quality. So I think what my brain just leaps to is the idea that Netflix basically is going to solve it for us all. Netflix will solve it for us all has been, I mean, the default position of the world for quite some time now. Yeah. Um, I don't know how we're getting on with that. The, I, I did get forced to sit through a Netflix original anime the other day that was all about high school kids gambling and um, it didn't solve anything for me. I'm not going to lie to you. I can't oh. remember the name of it. <laughs> uh, but a friend of mine who was staying with me is utterly enamored of it. That is way off track. <laughs> Do we think that coronavirus, COVID-19, could be the push we need for people to actually take telepresence seriously? I I like I really hope so. In that sense of, you know, if something good can come out of a little bit of uh, you know, not entirely unreasonable panic, but definitely, you know, some premature panic within parts of the world. Um, I think bosses embracing some of this more would be a really valuable thing because I I really feel like there's still too many leaders of companies in the world that continue to feel like if you're not at your desk, you're not working for real. <laughs> um, and, you know, seeing the potential of lost productivity and the potential for not losing it because you've let your workers be set up properly to work from wherever they need to work from uh, or to, you know, hold really good quality meetings uh, online would be, yeah, that'd be a really positive thing. Well, let's hope that, you know, as you said, if one small glimmer of something vaguely good can come out of what I think is going to be globally an extraordinarily trying time for a couple of months at the very least, yeah. hopefully that'll be it. Look, talking about embracing things that I never thought I would embrace, do you do you mobile game? I know you used to play a bit of Hearthstone. I think you still do. Do we count that as a mobile game still? Yeah, and look, I mean, that's a tricky one because, yeah, I play it probably as much on a desktop as I do on a mobile. But, you know, actually, I have been playing way too much of a really old mobile game, Adventure Capitalist, huh. um, which is totally just one of those idle clicker games, but <laughs> it is so well-suited to that idea of, oh, I'll just see how it's going, pull it out for a couple of minutes, tap, 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 tap. Okay, I've just updated things. I'm now making more money because that's just the kind of silly idle clicker game it is um but uh, that's probably yeah it's probably those extremes of i'm either playing something that to me feels like well it's pretty full fat uh hearthstone or the just taps and buttons rapidly uh in between times so i have got myself you know i'm not going to say addicted but very enamored of a bloody find a word game you know jumble of letters make the words up that need to be there right i'm up to level 837 <laughs> which is just killing me when I see that and go, what have I done with my life? <laughs> so I'm dividing my mobile gaming time between that 
And because I'll play anything with a D and D logo logo on it, Warriors of Waterdeep. Oh, I I've sampled that. I haven't played much past that sort of little first first couple little missions, but that that's a pretty fun thing. I'm really enjoying it, and I'm doing everything I can to not spend a cent on it. Like that, I am absolutely refusing to. Yeah. Um, because I know it would be very easy to fall into that. And having had friends of mine spend thousands of dollars on the Kim Kardashian game, oh. I don't want that to occur to me with a bloody D&D game. That's what, yeah. that's what rule books are for, spending thousands and thousands of dollars on, not a mobile game. But um, <laughs> I, as someone who spent a lot of time playing console and a bit of desktop, I've I got to admit I've always thought of mobile games as being a bit of throwaway, something you do when you're, sitting waiting for a bus or you know when you've only got a couple of minutes been really impressed with the depth of this particular game it's not got a huge story but there's a lot of different ways to play there's a lot of ways to angle the way you play some good uh player versus player components that don't feel overly confrontational or um even eat up that much time some exploring some characters you know if you've ever played any of the water deep scenarios um i'm not saying it's a brilliant game but i I found it more than just a time waster, and that has surprised me. I think that's actually, yeah, a really good point that when they, like, that there really can be a balance now where, and, yeah, like, they're still designed to try to very highly encourage you to spend some money in them. Um, but you're right, you can actually approach these games in a way that you just sort of embrace that as part of your challenge in the game is to <laughs> maximize your you know game experience without clicking that button that says just do you want five more gems you can have them right now <laughs> go for it look it's got me a bit nostalgic for the companion game um god what am i thinking of never winter when i was playing that for a while one of the great things was there was a companion app so you had followers who would go and do things like a bit of research for you and that would bring right. you back some golden gems. But you could run them through the app, not through the game. So while that's you might great. be able to get home and play the game, while you're at work or whatever, go, oh, okay, that's right, that follower's back. I can go and make him do that. And it actually had an impact for you back in the game. I remember thinking this for, um, of all things, Fallout Las Vegas. I thought when it was one of the Fallout games that um, gave you uh, weapon repair and having to find the right parts and other bits and pieces, uh, even making your own ammunition. I thought, well, what if that was a companion app? What if I could spend a couple of minutes like making ammo or repairing bits and pieces in fun little mini games? And then when I went back to the game on console, all of that had been done for me already. I just, yeah. that's something I've never encountered that's worked really, really well for me. And I, I wanted more of that, a game where I could take a little piece of it away and play it so I could get that fix in throughout the day, not not in a dangerous way where I'm going to be like, you know, hiding out in a spare meeting room, hoping <laughs> yeah. no one calls me in for anything because I'm just getting this work done, but somewhere I could just touch in here and there and actually reap those rewards in game later on. And we kind of seem to have stepped away from that entirely unless I've missed something in the last couple of years. Yeah, I I feel like part of it might be that there is, you know, that these days, I mean, I guess there probably always has been, but there's been quite a lot of work required to integrate uh. an app with the other game, you know, and kind of get all that server stuff talking backwards and forwards nicely. But, you know, having said that, World of Warcraft actually has consistently for quite a few years now had had little systems. It's 
like it doesn't feel like it works very well because like just slow load times and different things, which partly is why I think, you know, it, it might be harder than it, it looks on the surface to you and I, the totally not coders of video games. Not even vaguely. Um, so when I, you know, when I'm swapping characters um, between different things in World of Warcraft, I can, like there is a sort of follower system and most of the last few expansions have had some kind of a system where you've got a group of yeah followers that you can send off to do side missions. And being able to do that through the app is exactly like you you sort of said about that other game where um, I can sort of say, oh, great, I'll like pick out these followers, I'll send them off and they're going to earn me some money or they're going to get find me some resources or different things so that, you know, then a few days later when I get back to uh, actually being able to sit at a computer and play some actual World of Warcraft my that kind of homework is already done you know i don't have to do the boring bits um or it's just like a nice little bonus so it doesn't feel like i'm compelled to do those things either way which is also good because i think you know sometimes that stuff can get out of hand where you're like oh i before i get to play the fun stuff i need to spend two hours doing the chores Uh... Um, that can be a bit rubbish but it's like they used to also have an auction house app but they did remove that. And so oh. that was interesting in that I I kind of wonder what was the thinking behind removing it. Was it that some people got too good at gaming the auction house if they had access to it at all times, yeah, versus uh yeah, like the potential of what they could do to the economy in this massively multiplayer game might actually have had an influence on them saying, maybe we should just make people only buy and sell things when they're at their computer rather than anywhere, anytime. You take me back to the days of having to race home and work out if my eBay auctions had gone through or not because you couldn't <laughs> check it when you're at work. Um, look, the Old Republic, Star Wars The Old Republic, I'm not a massive MMO fan these days at all, but I really enjoyed their solo game up to level 10. And one of the nice touches was being able to, all the junk you find, give it to a companion who'd then disappear for seven, eight, nine, ten 10 minutes or whatever and come back with the money from selling it. So you didn't <sighs> have great. to wait to get to a marketplace or a merchant or whatever. Yeah. Um, and I really enjoyed little touches like that that just made the game more approachable especially for people who don't have a lot of time yeah and look one thing i wanted to mention about the mobile gaming thing in general is i think something that um i'm not sure if there's a google play store equivalent at this point i think there maybe is but i think apple's arcade kind of subscription system has been pretty good for 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 helping more developers to you know make the kinds of games that aren't about desperately trying to make you click that button that you know means you spend five or ten dollars at a time um by having that sort of subscription option of saying for you know eight bucks a month you get these hundred games for free and they are all games that are guaranteed to have no in-app transactions um you know no ads everything is just you install it and you play it and that's all there is to it. And there are all those kinds of games, like there are really simple, fun puzzle type games and then there are deep RPG type games all within that umbrella of Apple Arcade. And I do feel like Play Store has been sort of doing similar uh, initiative. I'm not sure how that one goes because I'm not really on that stuff lately. But I think that has been a good thing 
for that whole sort of world of, you know, exploring mobile games and knowing that if you give that sort of stuff a try, it's not going to, yeah, try to sort of forcibly do nasty things to you. And look, anything that is supporting uh, the ability for smaller dev groups to actually make games and make money out of them gets a yeah. huge thumbs up to me. Yeah. We don't and, want this and, to turn back into another bloody oligarchy. Yeah, and it's like to make the kinds of games that they wanted to make in the first place, not to make the kind of game that they believe will get enough people to spend enough money to blah, blah, you know, like yeah. all those kind of metrics have started to influence the kinds of games people even make. But one quick recommendation for you, mm-hmm. if it's on Google, I hope it is, but it's something that my wife has completely fallen in love with, puzzle game called Hugh. I think it's called I Love Hugh. And it is basically like a, a jigsaw puzzle, but it's just color hues. So, you oh. know... It's like oh. a pink next to a slightly different pink next to a slightly different pink, <laughs> that kind of a thing. And there'll be maybe, you know, 80 tiles on the screen. But it has like that kind of meditative soundtrack and you just kind of, you know, slide things around and until you have gotten everything into the right kind of color palette. It's quite lovely. I can actually see myself really, really getting into that. Also, I said oligarchy before when I meant oligopoly, but I don't think that's a really big deal, but we're just going there. Just staying on gaming for a little bit longer, I just had to mention this because it's been a bit of a wild ride. I've gone back and I've replayed all of the Uncharted games, the the, oh. the remastered versions. I'm, I'm nearly towards the end of Uncharted 4 now. Boy, that's been a wild ride because I don't tend to go back and play older games. I, I just never have. I, I might go back and replay stuff within the same year or two. But to go back to Uncharted 1 and feel how clunky it was at the same time of how innovative it was, how poor some of the writing is at the same time of how <laughs> rich some of that story is, yeah. uh, it's been wild. And, and and all the frustrations and, you know, I nearly cried when I saw that bloody jet ski and remembered what was coming for me in just a, a couple of quick game periods because, God, that jet ski thing still, of, of all the things you would remaster, you might take out the jet ski. Naughty, <laughs> don't just take it out. But they didn't, and that's fine. That's just where we go. But um, it's been interesting to see just little weird developments that come through, where they've kind of grown up as a studio, when they've realised that they could do a lot more with the whole characters, things you wouldn't notice with the years in between. And have you ever done, have you gone back and played a, um, a, a franchise from beginning to end? No. I mean, oh, neither ooh, have I me before think. this. I think... Um... No, I still didn't get around to it. Like, I remember getting the uh, the Baldur's Gate Enhanced Edition stuff that came out, thinking, yeah, I'm totally going to play these again because that would be great to kind of go back and know it's going to work on a modern system. They're even now actually available on iPad and things like that, but I haven't pulled the trigger on going back. I mean, I guess my kind of love for World of Warcraft means I'm still (laughs) playing a 15-year-old game. (laughs) (laughs) but no like i'm fascinated though by that sort of whole idea of uncharted because i think one thing that for some of those sorts of games where i might have like missed something in the series you know i've like played the original but not played two and things like that is thinking about like oh is it going to run properly on like the new one does it and because there were so many of those things where they were like yep this is backwards compatible or this isn't and then like I just kind of lost track of all that with the consoles. 
but part of me wants to sit down and kind of share some of these, you know, experiences from 10, 15 years ago with the kids now that they're at an age where they could really enjoy some of these games. And I know that it's a great game. Um, yeah, I just sort of, that's the big thing that always holds me back is being like, I know they say it works now. So part of it is almost needing that personal recommendation from somebody to say, oh, no, no, it's good. <laughs> I really, really enjoyed it. Um, it it's actually been amazing. Um in terms of the mechanics, it seems to work quite well. I mean, you know, watching those mechanics change from game to game has been fascinating. And I think one of the interesting things is that at one point they just changed the um, uh, controller mapping. So I keep throwing grenades oh. at people while I'm trying to reload because they just changed that <laughs> button. I'm like, if I had been, you know, if I'd had four years between the game, I wouldn't have even remembered. It wouldn't be this kind of automatic feature anymore, yeah. uh, automatic response. But instead this has happened. One of the cute touches is at the start, of a thief's end or towards the start of a thief's end, the fourth one, um, Nathan goes through his attic and, and, and finds mementos of all of those adventures. And I remember playing it first time and going, I've got no idea what that's from. What's he touching there? What the hell is that? Well, and there was no nostalgia there because of how yeah. long it had been. Nothing but nostalgia this time because I've been so mired in the game just back to back to back. And it was actually a really nice touch. I feel like I'm getting more replaying this after replaying everything else. It's been great, actually. That's a, that's really good. And, I mean, it almost matches that sense of, you know, going back to watch old movies, but to watch kind of the whole series of, you know, some yes. kind of a movie, again, where it's come out over, you know, 10, 15 years, and then to kind of sit down and go, let's just watch them all. And you do, there's those threads that, you know, a writer or a director can drop in there, but that with the years in between times, only the most kind of, particular viewer <laughs> is going to spot them and so to give yourself that opportunity in a game is actually really great because yeah it's just not normally the way that we would even get to think about trying to experience them so that's a great idea to have gone actually quite rapidly back through that series that's awesome yeah i'm hoping i'll find something else to do it with and of course i am doing it on a 4k tv one of the older models but it's 4k it does have hdr you would have upgraded a while ago i'm sure I yeah I think actually I've had a 4K TV for five years now. Yeah, wow. So it's yeah it's also getting to that point where you're like oh like different little bits and pieces of it um, starting to notice don't work perfectly. <laughs> like mine wasn't from that. Like it was a year before Android TV became the norm as the <sighs> platform. Yeah. So but like the Foxtel app that's built into it still works. That's probably the big one that I'm like if that stops working. Maybe I think about something, but mostly as well, we'll use like Apple TV or different things to kind of plug into it instead of worrying too much about the built-in features. So actually, I feel like we're probably not going to upgrade for quite some time, but even waiting another four or five years, if it holds out that long, um, the one thing that I have been adamant about and <laughs> I will like go to, you know, absolutely go to the mat for is the idea that there will never be a good reason to have an 8K TV in a normal living room. And we have even more evidence to support my reasoning behind that, thanks to Warner Brothers actually what? holding a full double-blind trial to work out 4K versus 8K. Do people notice a difference? And do they? So I'm going to see if I can pull up there. Uh, Tech Hive. I'll actually I'll put the um, I'll put it in the show notes because they did a really good breakdown of this 
uh, of this paper. And now, of course, I probably closed it somewhere. Uh, oh, no, I've got it. Um, but, yeah, basically using – and, like, they've detailed this stuff so well. They What they did was use, like – and this is – because sometimes, right, let me just bring my brain together – Sometimes with these things, you know, like when they were first showing off 4K TVs, they just show these generic footage of a woman walking across a field. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. With the, the bro- flowers. Broccoli falling into a bowl, something like that, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You go, look how red the reds are. Doesn't it look good? And you're like, what settings have you set up that TV on? You know, oh, no, no, we don't want you to look at the settings. Uh, so this has been set up where they have had an AK TV um, showing uh, 10 second long clips with zero compression, like fully uncompressed uh, 8K clips of Dunkirk, the movie, Ooh. Uh, 8K renderings of Pixar's Brave and A Bug's Life. Like they have worked with the industry as part of this whole thing. Um, clips from Amazon's live action series, The Tick, which was actually shot in 8K on red digital cinema cameras. Like, so they've really pulled together like seven different clips that are all kind of perfectly made for this sort of content experience, but that they are real kinds of things that you would actually be watching for enjoyment. Um, and then they're all also in HDR, like full HDR 10. Um, so like everything about them is the ultimate footage you can possibly get at the moment. And then they use industry standard tech to downscale it all to 4K as well. So, yeah, everything has been downscaled. And then, and, and this is one spot where I'm sure some, you know, pedants are going to get a bit weird about it. But in an industry way, they have done it exactly the way that they wanted to run the test, which was they downscaled it all to 4K using industry standard software. Then they upscaled the 4K back to 8K, but using sort of this specific kind of filter that essentially means it was 4K footage in an 8K container. And the reason that they sort of did that was so that the footage would be played randomized um, on the, you know, on this same TV and the TV is not going to suddenly kind of show up a thing saying, oh, I've just changed to 4K, you know, those kinds of weird messages you get on a TV when yeah. it sort of explains. Very randomly sometimes as well. Go on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, and like it'll go, oh, no, no, my mistake. I'm still... <laughs> I'm still hey, well, but I thing. just wanted to... Huh. Yeah. <laughs> and so this was on an 8K OLED 88-inch TV. Phew. Right? Like this is as good as it gets in the current market and a massive screen, so completely, completely set up so to, to do exactly this sort of a thing. Um, people then basically were given, you know, do they think it looks much better, better, slightly better, the same, etc. Um, and then yeah, they even assessed like what everybody's vision was like in the test. <laughs> okay. <laughs> like what, you know, so it's like, oh, we had, uh, X number of people were 2020, 34%, this, that, the other. Anyway, test results basically were almost everybody was ever so slightly above zero, the same, that everything looked basically the same. Things erred ever so slightly towards slightly better. (laughs) 
And by ever so slightly, I mean, you know, if you're scoring at zero, one, two, or three, where three is much better, I think the average sits at about like 0.2. Oh my. Do you know what this is weirdly reminding me of? 12 years ago, when the Audioholics Forum did the monster cable versus oh. an unfolded coat hanger. And in a oh my god, this, I forgot that. That was so this was for audio, of course. But yeah. uh, out of these self-professed audio files, not only could none of them pick the difference between a monster cable and a coat hanger being used to transmit audio, they couldn't even tell that a coat hanger had been used. They couldn't even tell that it wasn't a cable. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> now that is just you know that 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 is a, a little bit of. Somewhere between senses and somewhere between I know my, you know, chosen kind of music, blah, 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 blah. This is actually, and you've been talking about this for a while, that 8K at a certain physiological level doesn't make a difference. Yeah. That it's like when you are sitting at a normal viewing distance inside a, you know, a normal living room, you are not, you literally cannot see the difference. And that's what they're finding here with, with this test. You know, of course, uh, you know, there's probably a few edge case type people where they could they could tell a little bit better. And there were things like they had sort of closer seating positions, and yes, in that much closer seating position, you can start to see the difference. But the like there is a kind of a ratio around it all where the the optimal viewing distance for watching a 4K TV is about one and a half times the width of the screen away from the screen. And it kind of, and then, you know, optimal for like HD, Mm. like normal 1080p is essentially about like three times the width of the screen. Mm. Um, So if you're closer than that, and you can even see that in that gap of like three times to one and a half times, there's kind of that window there where 4K is going to be better. So in kind of, Probably most living rooms, 4K is definitely an improvement on the enjoyment of watching something. But then for 8K, that sort of same multiplier exists that means you need to be 0.75 of the width of the screen away from it to notice the difference. That's my nose touching the screen almost. And and this is the thing. Long-term, 8K... As a touchscreen kind of thing where, okay, yeah, if it is massive and you are within arm's length of the screen because we've discovered some amazing new thing that we want to do with this stuff that means you want to literally be hands-on, maybe it's some kind of Fahrenheit 451 stuff with like wall, wall-sized wall screens that we're like involved in our screenplays, participating in the action through AI, VR, blah, blah. <laughs> I love the way I finish every made-up description of something with blah, blah, blah. blah. <laughs> but, yeah, like, that is my big thing. And the thing is I am absolutely seeing some other tech journos who are totally sort of selling that same sizzle that the companies want you to be sold on, like at CES this year where, yep, there's 8K screens on the stands, so people just talk about how amazing it is because the next generation is here. It's like... The next generation can bugger off. What we need is we should be standardizing OLED because that is amazing to look at. We should be absolutely then focusing on giving us the great HDR quality 
so that it's more about the dynamic range of the picture quality and giving us that sort of true, you know, infinite depth of color, like of light ratio from sort of true black through to having actual kind of beautiful lighting. But 8K can just go away. I even remember going to a Sony event in Hollywood <laughs> around the launch when they were going to launch 4K Blu-ray. And they even told us how new movies were being mastered at 5K because they'd done their research. And that's like as much as they would even, like that was considered to be a good level that they would then compress to 4K. But that when they were scanning old movies <sighs> in the archives into digital, <sighs> I'm really, I'm ranting. <laughs> this is so good. <laughs> Sorry. Sure hate to be an AK TV manufacturer right now. I just, it's not a thing. It is not a thing in our living rooms. It shouldn't be. Anyone who is absolutely trying to convince you it is, is just trying to sell you something that you don't need. Look, I'm inclined to agree. And I got to say that the, the thing that has made me really enjoy my TV that I have, and it's a couple of years old now, I'm not going to say what brand it is. The thing that has made me love it is the fact that it has a dedicated Netflix button on the remote and that's all it took. <laughs> that is all it took is that I could press that button, the TV turns itself on, it goes straight to Netflix, I'm ready to go. I will choose convenience over 8K or anything like that every single time. Totally, yep. And that's it. We just want to be able to consume cool stuff and all the smart TV stuff as well, right? Again, it's like TVs kind of, you know, like, the speed of the rest of the tech moves faster than we should have to upgrade our TV. So plugging in a clever little set-top box of some kind is always going to be more efficient. And thankfully, yeah, you know, Netflix in particular has done a good job of supporting some of those built-in apps in ways that, you know, on my TV, the Foxtel app hasn't been updated in line with the rest of their kind of app experience, but to their credit, it still works. And that's kind of a big thing where, you know, it could completely have been, you know, understandable if at some point they went, we, it's been six years, we can't support that old app because, you know, our video is encoded differently now, whatever it might have been. So at least they still support it, even though the interface works totally differently to all the rest of their apps. All right, we should wrap up soon. Yes, let you, we should. <laughs> let you have a Bex and a lie down after that. But do we want to talk... go down the street muttering about 8K now? I love it. Do we want to quickly touch on the joy of the pet net food bowl? The yes. oh, I know we don't normally swear on this uh, program at all, so do forgive me though, but what has been joyously called on the internet many, many times, part of the internet of shit. <laughs> That's right. So, you know, famous champion of that category of products includes the Juicero, the <laughs> internet-enabled juicing machine. Um, here we have PetNet joining in, an Internet of Things food bowl that, uh, you know, so it's meant to be able to feed your pets the optimal amount of food on a daily basis. Amazing. Uh, without you needing to get involved. Um, it went offline for an entire week. And, yeah, quite a few people uh, suddenly discovered that their pets were going hungry. Um, clearly, you want to pay enough attention to your pet. But I could completely understand that if you were finding this thing reliable over, you know, let's say you've owned one for many months and you'd be like, well, we're going away on holidays for a week. 
and this thing does a great job and the pets are more comfortable if they get to stay at home. So we're just going to rely on its capability to feed our pets. And suddenly you discover that it's gone offline and you didn't know about it. That is horrendous. It's really horrifying. We're both pet owners. I'm chilled by the idea of that. And I don't know, like, as you said, Juicero, these sort of things, they just keep exposing the flaws and the flaws and the flaws. And this one could have been life-threatening. Yeah. And look, this is one of those things as well, right, where treating something that is as essential as feeding an animal uh, within the whole startup world where, you know, they sort of tweeted about having a system outage affecting second-generation devices and asked customers not to switch it off, even if it appeared to be offline. Um, and then, like, a week later, they were like, oh, things are working again. Um, oh, sorry, yeah, four days later, they tweeted, uh, oh, we'll release more information soon. And then it was a full week later when they said that they were returning to online and a system reset was in progress. Um, it's just nuts that things like this can happen. And no, bad pet net, bad pet net. That is <laughs> not the way this is meant to work. <laughs> and the thing that always kills me as well, of course, these people spend so much money on beautiful marketing photos and all the things that you can't help but inherently make you feel like it's a real company doing real things. <laughs> and then you sort of realize that, Actually, it's probably a team of like, a, you know, I don't know. I don't want to cast aspersions on PetNet in particular, but quite often these startups are running very, very close to the bone in terms of how many staff and how many programmers and how much money they have in the bank compared to, you know, how, how many investments they've had in the last three months, all that kind of stuff that just makes it feel like, yeah, do you want to do this sort of thing? Or uh, someone did point out that, the um you know the highest rated automatic feeder on Amazon because it turns out PetNet apparently actually has a terrible rating on Amazon. Ooh. Um that the highest rated automatic feeder, funnily enough, isn't internet connected. <sighs> you know it who just would... does the job you want it to do. <laughs> you know who wouldn't have let this happen? Who? The pets.com sock puppet. He would have made sure that this was all okay. It's time for him to come back. It is time for him to come back. <laughs> James Byrne, it's time for us to go, I think. <laughs> Nick, thank you so much. Where can people find you if they want to find you and track you down on the internet only, not in real person? You can track me down on Facebook. It's just search my name, Nick Healy. And on Twitter, I am uh, at dr underscore nic, Dr. Nick. And I'm at Seamus on Twitter. And then, of course, Byteside. You can find all of our internet things at Byteside.com, at Byteside on Twitter. Feel free to send us messages also via ask at Byteside.com. Thank you so much, Nick. Catch you next week. Catch you then. 